0: Hello, church. Hi. We're going to go into scripture reading this morning. So the passage this morning is Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. Um, There are Bibles in the pews in front of you if you want to flip there. Um, It should be on page 1786. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me.
1: Thanks, Becca. Good morning. morning. This isn't a trap, uh, but if you have a smartphone, like in a pocket or a purse, go ahead and pull it out. Just get it in your hand right now. Uh, This is your semi regular reminder that we're still in the season of Pentecost. Sometimes the church just calls it ordinary time because living under the power of the Spirit is the normal. An ordinary expression of the Christian life. We're rounding the bend toward Advent now, but for now, take a moment to remember the fruits of the Spirit, and especially the first fruit of the Spirit, love. Jesus' commandment that he calls the new commandment to all of us is this, love one another as I have loved you. That's love that has to be manifest in action. The way the New Testament says it is this bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Here's one practical way that all of us as a community can be a community that fulfills Jesus' new commandment and fulfills the law of Christ. If you've got your phones, just take a picture of this slide. Don't have to do anything else with it right now. Uh, Our board of deacons is looking for new volunteers who are gonna be the sort of people who get an email whenever there's a need that arises in our community. So I want you to think about like, the young parents who don't have family around, but have a baby for the first time and don't like, have spare time to cook because they're figuring out how to keep a human alive. I want you to think about the folks in the community who are like, out riding mountain bikes, fall off, break a collarbone, can't rake their leaves anymore. Those are the sort of people that we want to help in-house as the body of Christ. We don't want them like, just to have to call folks at random, look to a coworker or a colleague. We want them to be so tied into the body here that they can just put their hand up and say, I need some help and we want to be there to meet the need. So if you will just send an email to Adrian A. Brannon at highpointchurch.org with the subject line, I want to help. We're just gonna add your name to a list. You're not committing to doing absolutely anything, any particular service project at any time. All you're saying is when there's a need, I'd like to know about it, and if I can help, I will. Sound like something you can do? All right. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your ways are not ours, your thoughts are higher than ours. You say that no one can find you by searching for you, but you also promise that. Uh, If we seek you, we'll find you and we search for you with all our hearts. So we come today looking for you, looking for your word, looking for what you want to do for us, in us, through us. So we invite you, come Holy Spirit, do what only you can do in our minds and in our hearts. Give us the mind of Christ that we would understand the true revelation of the Father. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Is anyone else like me just kind of secretly skeptical whenever anything gets kind of popular? It's the reason that I've never seen Titanic or Avatar. Um, Please keep listening, if that's your favorite movie, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm that way, actually, even when it comes to Christian books. I've never read A Purpose Driven Life. Sure, it's great. Never read it. Uh, w- one of my secret joys, as the kind of nerd that I am, is finding the really old devotional literature that nobody today would know existed. It's never going to make like a New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, when it comes to Christian books, I want the deep tracks, no hits. Um, so one of those deep tracks that I've come to really appreciate uh, there was, there's, it's actually an Eastern Orthodox bu- uh, book. It's really an anthology of books called the Philokalia. And it c- just contains some edited spiritual writings from the fourth century through the 11th century, so really old, written in other languages, but translated into English. And at the front of the English edition of the Philokalia, there's an introduction written by an Orthodox bishop. His name's Callistos Ware. And uh, what Bishop Callistos says is that I'm glad you're going to read this book, but here's the thing you need to remember about the Christian life. The best way to grow in the Christian life is to have spiritual parents who are guiding you in it. If you don't have those folks available, make use of every good book you can find and trust to God, because he's still going to help you grow. But the very best way for you to grow as a Christian is to submit yourself to the guidance of a mature, trustworthy Christian minister. I mean, I know that that has been my experience throughout the course of my Christian life. I would not be the person that I am today if it weren't for serious, mature, godly leaders who had made years-long investments in me in my teens and in my 20s. When I think back, even over like the things that I've said that have come out of my, mul- out of my mouth in this pulpit in the short year that I've been here, I hear my father, I hear my doctoral advisor, Carl, I hear another one of my professors, Luke, and I hear my pastors from the years and years and years before me. I hear them, and I know that whoever I am today, I am, not least because of them. That's the dynamic that I want you to bear in mind when you think about the text that Becca just read. Because on one hand, this is a part in Philippians where a lot of times those of us who read our Bibles devotionally start to kind of go off the rails a little bit. If you've been feeling the first two chapters of Philippians so far, there's some really beautiful, powerful stuff in there. God's the one who's beginning a good work in you. Paul's the one who's sticking around because he truly loves the church. Jesus is the one who submits to the will of the Father and humbles himself and takes on the nature of a servant. Not because not it's good for him, because it's good for all the people he's trying to save. And so at this point, you, you know, you're kind of rocking your chair like, yeah, that's beautiful. But then suddenly we shift to this almost like transactional business. By the way, Timothy's coming soon. Here's Epaphroditus, he's carrying this letter. I mean, What do these folks, and folks especially with oldie-timey Greek names like Epaphroditus, have to do with everything that Paul's been doing up till now? I mean, it almost feels like a bit of whiplash. It's, it's a bit awkward. That's one way to read it. It's just to say, well, maybe Paul nodded off and then he woke up and started writing the next thought that came to mind and it didn't really connect with what came before. That's one possibility. But here's another possibility. Maybe Paul is actually doing this on purpose. Maybe Paul has waited until right now to tell the Corinthians, here's Epaphroditus, and this is the promise, Timothy is coming. I think that last reading is actually a little more likely. The truth is that if you probably ask Paul for one sentence, why are you writing Philippians? He would say, because Timothy's coming. Timothy's coming. So all of us can rest secure in that confidence today. Timothy didn't just come to the church of Philippi. God is still sending Timothy to all of us today. Before I say more about that, let's just talk a little bit about the passage. Um, I got an email in my inbox last week. There was a friend who was setting up an introduction between me and another one of his mutual friends. Any of you ever get those emails? You're just going to go, like, sit down for coffee with someone you never met? Yeah. The folks in Philippi might or might not really know Timothy, even though in... The very beginning of the letter, chapter one, verse one, the names of the authors are Paul and Timothy. But Paul is sending this letter to remind the Philippians that there's this guy named Timothy out there and that he's coming to them. This, this Philippians, the book of Philippians is really kind of like one of those emails introducing you to somebody that maybe you haven't met before. But here's the unstated, kind of indirect, subtle point that Paul is making at this point in the letter. At the end of chapter two, it's that good Christian ministers look like Jesus, and so does Timothy. Think back with me to chapter one. When Paul's talking about his own ministry, what does he say? he say? He says that it would be better for me at this stage in my life, sitting here in prison, rotting away, deprived of my freedom, probably got some health conditions going on too, If you, if you read Galatians. He's uncomfortable. It would be better for him just to depart, to be with Christ, to be at peace. But he sticks around because The Philippians need him. It's better for them that he remain. And then when you shift into chapter 2 and you read Paul's description of Jesus' ethos and ministry, laying aside the powers and prerogatives of divinity, laying aside all comfort, he takes on the nature of a slave, humbles himself, becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why does he do it? Because it's good for him? No, but because it's good for us. And then he turns to Epaphroditus and Timothy. What Paul says about Timothy, there's a couple things. First off, he's someone who will show genuine concern for the welfare of the Philippians, just like Paul, just like Jesus. Timothy comes to the Philippians or will come to the Philippians not because it's good for him but because the Philippians need him especially while Paul is deprived of his freedom while he's sitting in prison and can't come to help them who can come to help them? Timothy can and the Philippians ought to trust Timothy because like Paul says in verse 22 Timothy has been with Paul, like a son with his father, serving in the work of the gospel. This father-son imagery would have really stood out to folks in Philippi uh, for a couple reasons. One, because this is often the way that trades get passed down within families. Whatever your occupation was in antiquity, one of the best ways to learn it was to work over the course of years, mastering it from the inside by working with your father, the primary craftsman, artisan, business person, whatever. Um, That's also a metaphor that, that because it was such a common way of like passing on economic trades, that's a metaphor that people used to talk about the process of teacher and student relationships in the ancient world. Teachers, you would often just think of them as sort of being like second fathers. They're the people who are passing on this knowledge that they have that the generation after them needs. And so they would give it and they would give it for the good of the people who are growing up behind them. Notice also that the verb that Paul uses to describe Timothy's work is served. Uh, this wouldn't be obvious to you in English, but the, uh, the Greek verb there for served is diluo, which means really literally to be a slave. If, if the Greek word for slave is doulos. So that's the verbal form of what somebody does when they're a slave. They're serving just like Paul did. What Paul calls himself in 1 verse 1 is a slave of Jesus Christ. And he says in chapter 2 verse 7 that when Jesus humbled himself to become obedient to the Father's will to the point of death, he took on the form of a slave, the form of a loss. So when, pa- when Paul calls Timothy someone who has served with him in the gospel, what he's saying is he has become like Jesus setting his own will aside for the good of other people. He has become like Paul, who himself imitates Jesus, setting aside his will because it's good for other people that he does it. Now, in Christian ministers, you can't really find a more valuable quality than somebody who is willing to set aside their own will to love and serve the people around them. Because there's, it's just one of the highest examples of likeness that I can think of. This is what our master teaches us. Loving service means looking at the people around us and deciding that their good, their benefit, is preferable to our own. And boy, that is a hard thing to teach. In fact, I'm not even sure I could teach it. I think it's one of those things that God produces in us as we persevere in discipleship. Okay, that's a little bit about Timothy. What about Epaphroditus? Look at verse 25. Who is this guy? He's someone who was sent to Paul while he's in prison by the Philippians. He's someone specifically who was sent to take care of Paul's needs, verse 25. And in doing so, verse 30, he risked his own life to make up for the help that the rest of the folks in Philippi couldn't give him. Paul's in prison, and Epaphroditus goes to Paul carrying financial help to keep Paul basically alive in prison to make sure that Paul will have better food to eat than prison gruel, to make sure that uh, he can afford things like super expensive writing gear so that he can send letters to the churches that are under his care. I mean, writing implements in the ancient world, quills, scrolls, all of that stuff, that's about as expensive as like a MacBook Pro today. It's really hard to come by, but it's essential for the work of the ministry. When the Philippians send money to Paul in Epaphroditus' hand, they're making sure that the work of the ministry continues for all the churches that Paul has founded. It's entirely possible that you and I owe a direct debt to the Philippians and Epaphroditus because for all we know, a book like Romans was written with ink and on parchment that they paid for. This should matter to all of us. That simple act of giving money has echoed down through the ages and has edified so many countless generations of Christians in so many places. But for Epaphroditus, doing the work of coming to meet Paul's physical needs and continuing to advance the work of the ministry came at great physical cost. He was ill, verse 27, he almost died. He risked his life to make up for the help that the Philippians couldn't provide themselves. So what we see now in Epaphroditus coming back to Philippi is the realization that who all of that sacrifice has paid off it's paying dividends it's paying dividends because by supporting Paul directly you're not just supporting Paul you're supporting the circle of ministers around Paul the folks like Timothy the folks like Titus the folks who are going around and building up the church of God in all of these different cities that Paul has visited including Philippi so For whatever reason, I don't know what the Philippians were thinking when they decided, you know what, we hear Paul's in jail, let's make sure we send him some money to help keep the work of the ministry going. Whatever their purpose was, now they're about to directly reap even more benefits because Timothy, Paul's right-hand man, is going to come to them himself. And this is a super important fact, because Paul is worried that in his absence, some other ministers might come who don't quite have the Philippians' best interest at heart in the same way that he and Timothy do. What he says in verse 21 is that everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And if you bounce back a chapter, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, I'm just going to quote him, Paul says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And that brings us to the really, I think, the critical lesson for the church today. All of us. Whether our titles say pastor or whether we are the newest baptized believer at High Point Church still need Timothy's to come to us today. We need ministers who are committed to Christ and to our well-being. So remember that even if you and I feel that we enjoy strong spiritual leadership now, every pastor, every minister that you get to be around is an interim At some point, they will be called away. At some point, they will retire. At some point, they will move on, and we will need to pray and seek God and ask that there will be another person like Timothy ready to step up and take their place. Now, I'm all for praying those faithful prayers then. But I'm also all for thinking like the Philippians and Epaphroditus now, before the time when Paul has gone home to be with Jesus, before the time when we feel his absence and we know that there're these other folks who are coming in who might not have our best interest at part let's invest now in ministers who are going to make it their work to get Timothy ready let's send Epaphroditus now because i mean imagine with me what happens to the philippians if paul is in prison they don't send him any money he doesn't get the support that he needs He dies as a glorious martyr suffering for Jesus in prison, but then the Philippians are kind of left out there all alone. Timothy never comes, and then the Philippians are basically at the mercy of all of these other wandering teachers and, quote, apostles that Paul's worried about. This is not just an academic question for Paul. If you read the books that Paul wrote to the Galatians and to the Corinthians, you know that this is happening all the time. Galatians, the church in Galatia goes off the rail because some folks come from another church and say, you have got to be circumcised and submit to the law of Moses. And Paul has to write back and say, no, 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 no. In Corinth, the church is splitting into factions, like having infighting, breaking up into multiple churches because nobody can agree on who's in charge. Some people say it's Paul, some people say it's Apollo, some people say it's Peter. And the real spiritual folks are like, well, I follow Jesus. That's fine for all of you, but I follow Jesus. Sounds good, but, I mean, can you imagine rolling your eyes at them in that congregational meeting? Yeah. So what we need is we need ministers who are the, quote, same soul with Paul, that, like Paul says, that Timothy is. And we should be excited that those folks are out there and that God is training them up and raising them up for all of our good. Now, next week, I'm going to say a bit more about the contrast between healthy and unhealthy ministry, and the week after that, Mike is going to say even more about some specific threats to the church today, but for now, let's just focus uh, on the good of healthy ministry. Let's celebrate the good, knowing that we are going to talk a little bit in the next coming weeks about some of the risks. I don't know. I know some of you are in the medical profession. Many of my family members are in the medical field. Um, But if you follow the news headlines at all, you know that over the last few years, one of the repeating headlines, it bubbles up to the surface every couple of months, is two words nursing shortage. Nursing shortage. And if you've been hearing about all the horror stories that have come out of these like ER wards in the last couple years, when all of these really hardworking, faithful medical teams have been given it their all, but they're just short-staffed and burned out, then you'd probably think to yourself, boy, I wish that we had invested in like nursing education in the years before this. Well, What if I told you that in 2016, a couple years before the pandemic, nursing schools turned away 64,000 qualified applicants that could have been in our ER, ER wards, in our trauma rooms, that could have been supporting the medical teams that are keeping us and our family members alive. Why did they turn away so many qualified applicants? They didn't want their money? No, it's because there weren't enough teachers there to train the nurses. There weren't, and there weren't enough human resources in the schools that train nurses to raise them up to the point where they can be functioning RNs and then send them out into the field. And I hate to say this, folks, but this is actually the situation that the church is in right now. For the church right now, we're basically in the equivalent of 2016 where more people probably want and need training than we have Uh, teachers to offer. Think about uh, some of the Bible colleges and seminaries out there. Now, I recognize this is probably not the sort of industry that many of you think about, so I'm going to use a couple names here. Take my word for it that these are big deals. Um, I'm just going to mention a few of the biggest seminaries in America that would produce the sort of pastors who would come and serve a church like ours in the next 75 years. There's Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Over the last decade, Fuller has been in such financial trouble in downtown Pasadena that they have literally tried to sell their entire physical campus to the city of Pasadena so that they can move inland away from the coast where it's going to be more affordable for them. That is not a move that a healthy institution makes. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, this is the one that's closest to us geographically and spiritually. Some folks call it TEDS for the acronym. TEDS in the last year, fired six professors in order to shave $960,000 off of their budget. They didn't do it because they didn't like those professors. They did it because when their new president came, he was facing a $1.5 million annual budget shortfall every single year. So he had to get brutal. Laid off some fantastic people. Still running a half a million dollar a year deficit. How long can you do that if you're a business owner? Now, here's the other end of the brutal calculus, though. Right now, Trinity, across all its degree programs, has about 500 students. If Trinity were going to break even on its budget, it would need another 600 students paying the full tuition of $14,500 a year. It would need to more than double in size just to break even, even after firing six people. And by the way, over the last 20 years, their enrollment has gone down 40%. Another seminary, this one's in Massachusetts, so we've gone from California to Chicago to the east. Gordon-Conwell in Massachusetts recently did successfully sell its entire campus outside of Boston in order to move into rented quarters in Boston so they could be closer to a large population center, but they had to liquidate their most important physical asset to do it. It's a last ditch attempt to, to stay solvent. Now, I'm guessing that many of you haven't heard of these schools, There's no reason why you would have. Many of you work in other fields, but this is what you need to bear in mind when I throw these names and statistics out there. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School is where Nick Gibson went to seminary. It's where Brandon Ellis, our business administrator, studied for his graduate theological education. It's where our pastoral fellows right now, Paxton and Adam, are studying to be trained and qualified ministers of the gospel. It's where one of our current elders, Paul Young, did his graduate training Trinity is a school that has housed, like, some of the most important nationally known thought leaders for the evangelical church in the last 75 years. So when I tell you about the downward trajectory in a place like Trinity, you should feel about the same way in your gut, the way I would, that I would hope you would feel if you found out that, like, the top medical and nursing schools in America were going under. I mean, do do any of you think that you or your loved ones will need medical care in the next 50 years? then you should really be alarmed if you found out that the schools that train nurses and doctors are going under. Do any of you think that you or your loved ones will need wise, godly, pastoral leadership and counsel and ministry in the next 50 years? Then you should be concerned for the well-being of yourselves and your families. Where are these people going to come from? When I talk about this impending crisis of pastors and ministry leaders by comparing them to nurses and doctors, I'm not just using a convenient metaphor. I'm actually using one that comes from the earliest uh, generations of the church when pastors were starting to think about themselves and their callings and their vocational uh, ministries kind of rigorously and theologically. And one of the most important old books, one of those deep tracks that I love, about Christian pastoral ministry was written by a guy that we just today call Gregory the Great. He's writing at the end of the 4th, 5th century, and he wrote a book called The Book of the Pastoral Rule. And what Gregory argues is that what physicians are to the physical body, pastors are to the spirit and the soul of every Christian. And he says, basically, if you aren't a trained doctor, you have no business just prescribing drugs to people willy-nilly. Like, Have any of you ever had a surgery where you needed to be put under general anesthetic? Like, do you think that the person administering your general anesthetic, if it's okay for them to guess just about which drugs to use or at which dosages? No. That's basically what Gregory says Christian ministry is like. He says, if you haven't actually studied intensely to figure out what the remedies that the human soul needs are, if it's gonna overcome the indwelling power of sin and grow up into the fullness of God in Christ, if you haven't actually studied that stuff to know which medicines to apply to which spiritual maladies, then you should not dare to take upon yourself the title of pastor. This is why the first thing he says in this book is I am writing this book to convince you not to be a pastor. So, If churches like High Point, who love our pastors and love our ministers, want to thrive in the rest of this century, right now, we have to start thinking like the Philippians and like Epaphroditus. We have to think, where are our ministers going to come from, especially if they're locked down in prison and they can't come to us themselves physically? What are we gonna do? And the answer is, we support the folks who can train up Timothy's. We need to invest in Paul's, and we need to be okay with the fact that an awful lot of the work that Paul is gonna do isn't gonna be sitting down with us always and holding our hands. Sometimes it's gonna mean that Paul is unavailable to us, inaccessible, because he's devoting his time and his attention intensely to preparing Timothy, to preparing Titus, and all the other host of people that we don't necessarily know because their names aren't recorded in the New Testament. Maybe a guy like Sosthenes who shows up in 1 Corinthians, but nowhere else. Sometimes it's going to mean that the people we wish we could have more FaceTime with are going to be inaccessible, but they're going to be doing something that's essential for our good and for the good of our families. And like the Philippians, we're going to have to be okay paying for it. It's going to cost us something with, of our time, of our money. So don't worry, I'm not actually about to announce a capital campaign. It probably feels that way at this point. To be honest, I kind of wish that I was because I would give my money to that. But uh, if you do find yourself just itching to give, I would encourage you first, just when you go online and you're clicking the buttons, look at the one designated fund that says support our uh, Our pastoral interns and fellows. You can give to guys like Adam Kilgis and Paxton Bauer who are doing great work and are gonna be, uh, from what I can tell, just outstanding ministers. Seminary costs a lot of money And at least right now in the church, we often expect the people who go to seminary to foot the bill themselves. So that's one little practical way that you could give right now. But my big point is this. It's not that I'm trying to sell you anyone's practical solution to this impending problem, but I do want you to start thinking about the problem now. Be aware of it now before it becomes critical, before it starts to really harm the health and the life and the vitality of the church that we know and love. So look for opportunities to support young, budding ministers as they're on their way up. Sacrificing for them is the model that the Philippians give us today and that Epaphroditus gives us. Uh, So worship team, you can start to come back. We really can't expect our future pastors to train themselves in the same way that you probably wouldn't want, like, your knee surgeon to be self-taught, We have to see it as our job in the local church to identify and invest in the health, the knowledge, the competency of our future spiritual leaders. Like Bishop Callisto Ware says, books are helpful, but spiritual parents are way better. If we don't invest now, then this is what's going to happen. Our family members, the people that we lead to Christ in an initiative like BLESS, Eventually, they're going to feel like they're visitors to spiritual emergency rooms, but they get there and they find out that those emergency rooms are short-staffed. They're going to have to sit there and wait for hours and days needing spiritual attention and care that's not available. There's not enough doctors. There's not enough nurses. There's not enough pastors. There's not enough teachers. The good news is that we really have no cause for despair, even if there is cause to be like alarm and wake up And invest because what Paul says in Philippians 1 is still true the God who began a good work in us will bring it to completion and one of the ways that God continues to do his work in us is as Paul says in Ephesians he gives ministers as gifts to the church apostles prophets pastors evangelists and teachers who are going to build all of us up to do the work of the ministry God has never stopped giving those people as gifts to his church he knows we need them but this is also what Jesus says about the harvest Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. So pray for more workers. We need them. We need them bad. But then think like the Philippians. They're willing to take the risk, the financial risk, and even in Epaphroditus' case, the risk to his own like, physical health to extend the service, the love, the gift to Paul that will free him up to build up a Timothy. And then the law of sowing and reaping kicks in. What you sow and invest in a young minister like a Timothy comes back to you a hundredfold when that person shows up and it's like having Paul himself in your presence. Because this is the good news to the church today. Timothy is still coming. Amen.